Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Daniel Prisbilko. Today, the, uh, the message I've entitled, Which Patient Are You? It is estimated that during last year's pandemic lockdowns across the world, online sex trafficking industry grew by one third. And the traditional options, you know, that people do, you know, these special holidays that they do to certain places, you know, they were off the table, so they went online. And so they reckon that there's about five or six million persons involved in the industry today as slaves. How many of you believe that Jesus needs to come soon? Either Jesus comes soon or something has to happen, right? In recent years, I read uh, just this last week reports of the live harvest human organ industry. It's a multi-billion dollar industry and it's estimated that more than one million transplants have taken place in the last 20 years from involuntary. Did you get that? Involuntary transplant donors, meaning people most likely are being killed for their organs. How many of you believe Jesus needs to come soon? This week I saw a sponsored advertisement from a news organisation saying, if you rely on social media to find out what's happening, you're missing out on the prophecy that's unfolding as we speak. If you want to find out what's really going on in Israel, it said, and hear about the daily indication of Messiah's arrival, you need to sign up for the free breaking news updates today. Does this set off any alarm bells for anyone? Hmm? Jesus said what? For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect, if possible. Now, how many of you believe Jesus is coming soon? Now, do you think that a preacher, maybe in the 19th century, mid-19th century, uh, stood before a congregation, maybe very much like this one, and asked a similar question, maybe 100 years ago, 50 years ago, asked the very same question, right? We all hope that Jesus second coming is in our lifetime. Isn't that true? Every one of Jesus' disciples were probably convinced about Jesus' soon and imminent return. Were they wrong in proclaiming Jesus' soon return? 2,000 years later, here we are. And like Sodom, like Nineveh, maybe even like Jerusalem of old, we are living in trouble sometimes. I've even seen recently some well-meaning people today trying to hurry up Jesus. They seek to mix some truth together with some conspiracy theories, some reinterpretation and mixing up of prophecies. These ideas will lead to disappointment. 
We need to be patient, faithful to the Lord, diligent in mission, and as Revelation 14, 12 says, have the patience of the saints. So why hasn't Jesus come? Have you ever asked this question? We can be certain, I think, in um, proclaiming, I believe we can be certain in proclaiming Jesus' soon return and have a solid biblical foundation for that without having to chase down different rabbit holes of different conspiracies. True? Let's open our Bibles. If you have your Bibles, Second Peter uh, in the New Testament after the book of Hebrews and James, Second Peter chapter 3. And uh, we're looking at verses 3 to 14 here today. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verses 3 to 14. It says here, First of all, or knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Written about 30 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, Peter writes at a time when the early believers probably had passed away and I'm sure you know they were probably getting ridiculed for their beliefs. Where is this coming that you've been talking about? And under inspiration, Peter wrote these words of encouragement because people in all ages must be prepared. For this to happen. God didn't want his people to become disillusioned. So how do we deal with the scoffers, as it calls them here today? Uh, if we openly talk about our faith, we do encounter scoffers, don't we? Is that true? People that laugh, you know, when, when either we're, you know, maybe at university or perhaps we're in the corporate workplace. Uh, from the days of Peter to the days of social media, you know, uh, from preaching on the soapbox to just being an online blogger. If you put your neck out, if you stick your neck out, there's always going to be people that have come down and cut you down, right? That's why Peter says we must understand, we must be prepared. What is it that should set the believer apart from the scoffer? Can they be confident in their belief? We read on in uh, verses 5 to 7. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which is now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So it says here that the earth was formed out of water and by water. Yeah, last time I was at the beach, um, I was gazing out over the Pacific Ocean, you know, the vastness of the ocean. And I marveled at God's creative genius. And I recalled how I had recently read that, and I never knew this until just recently, if all the mountains on earth were leveled <laughs> and all the continents were pushed, big bulldozers, okay, into the valleys of the ocean, 
the whole world would be three kilometers underwater. Did you know that? Andrew knew that, because Andrew reads these things. I didn't know that. Um, three kilometers underwater if you pushed all the land in the ocean. They forget that long ago by God's word the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water by water. They say that Mount Everest is still growing. Clearly it you know, it must have come up from something. But I guess, you know, if you're a surveyor and looking through that theodolite and checking points and things like that, it's still growing. Today, we not only have Darwin and the theory of evolution, which we've you know, been around for 170 years or so, but we've got you know, the best-selling authors, Richard Dawkins with the God delusion, etc. We've got ridicule from, from Hollywood, from the media, from social media. You know, we basically live in a secular society where people are content to live without God. And actually, these days, they actively desire to shut down people of faith, true? So there is nothing really that's new. Back in Peter's day, it says that they deliberately forgot, deliberately forgot that God created all things. How can somebody deliberately forget? It's a choice, isn't it? People make a choice not to believe. So just as people in Noah's day chose not to believe what Noah was preaching, so people choose to believe that there is no creator. It then follows that people choose not to believe the scriptures when it says that Jesus is coming back. You know, at various times over the years, I've heard or read about scientists claiming to have found the missing link, you know, the holy grail, the missing link. This is it. We've got it, the missing link. And then they find out later on that you know, it's, it's actually a, an extinct species in its own right. Um, learned people in all institutions, it seems, continue in their quest to establish some sort of platform of, you know, that supports life without God. And as Christians, that's what we understand to be sin, isn't it? Sin is separation from God. Man's pursuit to establish beginnings without God continues. But the fact is that one day the scripture says that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, right? So the Bible tells us that he will return, he will destroy wickedness, he will destroy sin, he will save those who are faithful uh, to him. The Bible is full of promises of the second coming. Uh, Titus 2.13, it says, you know, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.28 says, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear what? A second time apart from sin for salvation. Then we have Acts 1 verse 11. Uh, Men of Galilee... Why do you stand gazing up to heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And then Revelation 1 verse 7, it says, Behold, he is coming with clouds, meaning 
uh, clouds in the Psalms are referred to as the angels. He's coming with all his angels, we read in other parts of the Bible. And every eye shall see him. Don't be deceived by any imposters. And uh, lastly, Matthew 24, verse 14 says, And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached where? To all the world as a witness to all nations and then the end will come. You know, the scriptures have many such promises, entire chapters even. Matthew chapter 24, chapter 25, etc. I believe the hope that we have in the second coming is certain because we know that when God foretells something, he does it, right? Biblical prophecies leaves actually very little doubt for the skeptic. And probably that's why, as a people, I think that's why we love prophecy so much. You know, sometimes people say, why do you Adventists study prophecy so much? I mean, it confirms the Bible that it's true. Um, so just as God warned Noah regarding the flood, and he did it, God promised the Messiah and he sent the Son. In the same way Jesus has promised here in John 14 that he will return. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, Jesus said. In my Father's house are many mansions or many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Friends, when God promises something, he delivers. How many of you have a dishwasher at home? Anyone? Do you use it? <laughs> uh, we have a dishwasher, but I think there was a couple of years where we didn't even use it. And then it's like recently in the last three months, I think maybe because my wife's been so, so busy, she's discovered we've got a dishwasher. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I believe we've got a new dishwasher at church, right? Yes. Amen. <laughs> so let me ask you, how many of you, when you put your dishes in that machine, you turn on the cycle, it might be, what, 45 minutes or something, an hour or whatever. Uh, you go back and check to make sure the, washing mach uh, the machine is working, like every five minutes or so, just, just, just checking. Anyone do that? No. <laughs> I see people scratching their heads and I think you're putting your hand up. <laughs> Some of us, you know, have more faith in the dishwashing machine than we have in the word of God. God has been faithful to us in the word in the past and so he will also be faithful in the future. Amen. But why is he taking so long? Verses 8 to 10, 2 Peter 3, verses 8 to 10. But it says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, the heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. It may appear that Jesus is delaying his coming, but we must understand that there is a reason for it, right? And what is the reason? First of all, 
With God, time is not an issue in this regard. We read that a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. But the real reason is in that next sentence, isn't it? He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This is a message of God's awesome mercy and grace. God's perceived slowness is entirely because of us. Because God has such great love for us, he doesn't want anyone to, to, to perish. Rather, he wants us all to come. Can you imagine if Jesus had come, say, a hundred years ago? What chance would any of us have? Even Prince Philip wouldn't have a chance, right? He didn't make a hundred. It might be a selfish thing, but I'm glad that Jesus waited. Part of the reason God is patient, however, is not just because of the people out there. It's the people in here. True? The people in here. If we go back to uh, one of the scriptures that I read earlier, Matthew 24, verse 14, it says what? The gospel needs to be preached to all nations, okay, across the whole world, and then the end will come. We realize then that just like every other promise in the Bible, did you get that? Every other promise in the Bible is conditional. Conditional. And then the end will come. It's interesting what we read in uh, Testimonies, <clears throat> Volume 5, written over 135 years ago. You know, I wonder if the same spirit that slowed the gospel down then is at work today. Ellen writes this, I am filled with sadness when I think of our condition as a people. The Lord has not closed heaven to us, but our own course of continual blacksliding has separated us from God. Pride, covetousness, love of the world have lived in the heart without fear of banishment or condemnation. Grievous and presumptuous sins have dwelt among us. And yet the general opinion is that the church is flourishing and that peace and prosperity, spiritual prosperity, are within her borders. If our church condition is similar to the days there in the early 1900s, how can we effectively take the gospel to the world? So in our understanding of time, it appears that time is not the key thing that is important to God. What is the key thing? What is important is our attitude, right? Our attitude and our response to the Lord. He is patient with you and I, and, and um, he is patient with those that have never heard of him. But he's patient with us too. And the longer we wait to turn to him, 100%, the more it breaks his heart. So the Lord is patient, but for how long? I think I've shared this story here before. Years ago, I read this story, a, a funny story about a school teacher and a young schoolboy. It was winter time, and the boy was having trouble after school getting his uh, gumboots on uh, to walk home. 
So the teacher came over and helped the young boy. They struggled, you know, they, to put the boots on. They pushed, they shoved. Eventually, they managed to, to get them on. And then the boy says, I think they're on the wrong feet. And, uh, and sure enough, the teacher rolled her eyes and they were on the wrong feet. So again, they went through the same process, pulling and pushing and pulling and pushing and finally quite exhausted. And that at this moment, once they were back on, the boy said that the boots weren't actually his. What? says the teacher surely not so she proceeds to pull them off again and during this time the boy is fumbling he says I, 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 actually they're my brother's boots and my mother made me wear them because I didn't have a pair of my own by this time the teacher was quite beside herself and she starts putting the boots back on again then she uh, measures up the lad once he's got them back on. And she says, it's cold outside, it's snowing. She says, where are your mittens? He says, I think I put them in my boots. <laughs> patience, patience. I, I honestly don't know how those teachers do it in those preschools. <laughs> how do you think your patience would shape up? How is your patience, by the way? Can you imagine how incredibly patient God is with us? He delays because he loves us. Speaking of God's last day church, you know, the Apostle John writes in Revelation 14, 12, here is the patience of the saints. The patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. We need the patience of the saints, right? We need the fruit of of the Holy Spirit. How do you get that patience? Do we ask for it? Do we regularly ask for the Holy Spirit? The Bible tells us that God is long-suffering. But will it always be that way? The next text says there that he will come as a thief in the night. Um, as we're not sure of the exact time of his coming we need to remain alert but you know for the believer it ought not be a surprise isn't that true for the believer it's not a surprise because we see the signs we're expecting Jesus right we need to maintain faithfulness to God to not become disheartened not conforming to the world etc and so if we're ready, then we need not worry about the time. Does that make sense? If we're ready, we need not worry about the time. And, you know, I've, um, I've been in ministry now for coming up close to 20 years now, and I've seen various people come and go. And they come with various ideas, you know, they come... They, looking through, you know, the genealogy of the kings and this and that, or looking at the different festivals and things in the Bible, or looking at this prophecy and that prophecy and then interpreting it, in, you know, in different kind of ways. And, you know, people love to kind of make an end goal, don't they? This is the date we're coming up, right? Isn't that true? Some of these people are long gone. They get disillusioned. They fall away. Some have died. The dates have come and gone. 
We need not worry about the time when Jesus will return. That's his department. He said that. We need to be prepared. And so if that's the case, how should we be waiting Christ's coming? The next verses tell us that, verses 11 to 14. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. Holy and godly lives in order to speed up the day of the Lord's return. How can we live? holy and godly lives. Well, if we look at our passage of study here, for starters, we should not be like those who scoff, right, at the second coming. We should not forget. We need to be ready, as if he's coming tomorrow, but plan for the future, right? We should not pursue our own desires, but rather submit our wills and lives to the Lord. In that little book that we have out in the foyer. Some of you have been taking them up and I keep refilling the stack. <laughs> There's different books. If you haven't noticed, it says free, take one, right? And, uh, and it's good. I've noticed that they're going out. But one of those little books there, Steps to Christ, we read there, you are just as dependent on Christ in order to live a holy life as is the branch upon the parent stock for growth and fruitfulness. Apart from him, you have no life. Many have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sin, but now they seek by their own efforts to live right. That's interesting, isn't it? Many have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sin, but now they seek by their own efforts to live right. But every such effort must fail. Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. Christ alone is our righteousness. He is our holiness. As we wait for the return of Christ, we submit our lives to him to be righteous in him. Jesus will pronounce the believers holy and righteous at his second coming. We need to trust him. Imagine, this is where the patients come from. Imagine two patients coming to a doctor. We'll call them patient A and patient B. They both have the same chronic disease and only this doctor can give them the remedy. Do you want that remedy? No? <laughs> Young boy coming up the stairs. I thought I'd preach to him for a millisecond. <laughs> only this doctor can give the remedy to cure these two patients, the remedy is twofold. One, the careful study of a certain book and adhering to its counsels. Secondly, the doctor is going away for an extended period of time and for the cure to be effective, they must maintain contact with the doctor. Both patients get a mobile phone, 
to stay in touch with the good doctor, but patient A uses it mostly for, you know, Instagram and those sorts of things. The things we see, you know, uh, everyone's just scrolling these days, aren't they? Scroll, 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 scroll. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, patient A figures it's a, it's a waste of time to call the doctor every day. I mean, time is money. Patient B, the faithful one, stays in touch with the doctor and gets advice on the meaning of what he's been reading in the remedy book and how to apply it in his life. Patient B doesn't focus on when the doctor will come back but rather he remains focused on maintaining that connection with the doctor and he, adhering to the counsel that, he, that he's getting. Then one day when the doctor returns, unannounced, patient B, fully restored to health. Whereas patient A is ashamed to even see the doctor. After all, the phone was given to him for free. The service was free. Which patient am I? Which patient are you? As I was thinking about this last passage of Peter that we read about living holy and godly lives, I thought of the passage in Romans chapter 12 where the Apostle Paul tells us about how to be patient in trouble. And we're living in a world of trouble, aren't we? A world of trouble. He gives us tips for living the faith of Jesus. And uh, it boils down to basically being a genuine disciple. And I want to read this to you. This is from the, the New Living Translation. Uh, Romans 12, verses 9 to 18. It says here, Don't just pretend that you love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Stand on the side of the good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honouring each other. Never be lazy in your work, but serve the Lord enthusiastically. Be glad for all God is planning for you. Be patient in trouble and always be prayerful. When God's children are in need, be the one to help them out and get into the habit of inviting guests home for dinner or if they need lodging for the night. If people persecute you because you're a Christian, don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. When others are happy, be happy with them. If they are sad, share their sorrow. Live in harmony with each other. Don't try to act important, but enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think that you know it all. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone do things in such a way that everyone can see that you are honourable. Do your part to live in peace with everyone as much as possible. Isn't that a wonderful passage? Friends, I believe that Jesus is coming soon. Our life is like a breath. The days are passing like a shadow. We don't need to take a notice of the scoffers they've always been around sometimes we need to take more note not of those of the on the outside but sometimes those on the inside sometimes those that come with sheep's clothing right wolves in sheep's clothing don't be deceived by misguided christians 
that may be an even harder deal to deal with. My friends, as sure as God created the earth, destroyed it with a flood, as sure as Jesus carried our sins as the Messiah to the cross of Calvary, so he will return to save those who are holy and righteous in him. Hebrews 10.36 says, Patient endurance is what you need now, so you will continue to do God's will. Then you will receive all that he has promised. Is that a good promise? I challenge you to take a hold of Jesus. You've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Be holy unto God. What is your decision? Will you heed the warnings? Harry Randall Truman, not the former U.S. president, but a different man, lived in a mountain lodge with his 16 cats near uh, a volcanic mountain called Mount St. Helens in Washington State, Oregon. Many times he had experienced tremors in the area and he'd been asked to move away by the authorities but he always stayed and in the end he was always okay surely this time would be no different the rumbling would pass and life would go on he was quoted as saying if the mountain goes i'm going with it and then it happened on the 18th of may 1980 what's that this is just barely 40 41 years ago With the power of several atomic bombs, the top of Mount St. Helens blew apart, spewing volcanic ash for hundreds, hundreds of kilometres across 11 states in the USA. And uh, some of the things that happened there at the time, the formations, the geological formations, etc., that happened within a matter of days and weeks... The geologists previously thought took millions of years. It happened within days, weeks. Anyway, Harry Truman disappeared with the mountain. You can see how big the mountain was on the left-hand side and then what it looked like on the right-hand side. Today, there are many Harrys who hesitate indecisiveness maybe there's even some here today yes they say there's been fires there's been droughts there's been floods there's been pandemics there's been wars and rumors of wars etc etc they come and go everything continues as it always has from the beginning that's what we read in peter right everything continues as it always has from the beginning but friend where will you be found when jesus comes I'm wondering if today you will rise to your feet and say, Lord, help me to be faithful. Help me to be ready for your second coming. Would you like to do that today? How many of you would like to stand and say, Lord, help me. Help me to be ready. Help me to be faithful. Uh, And so that I'm ready when Jesus comes. Is it your desire to be ready today? And say, yes, Lord, help me. Help me to have the patience of the saints and the faith of Jesus to be ready for that great day. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we recognise that the situations across this world are precarious and 
we recognize that something needs to happen before this world breaks apart, before we destroy ourselves. And as we see all these different signs, we know that your coming must be soon. But Lord, help us not to focus on the time. Help us to focus on who we are in you. Help us to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And Lord, help us to be a witness to others so that this gospel may be preached to the end of the world. This great message that we have, that Jesus is our saviour. Help us to share this message. And then the Bible says, the end will come. We pray that you'll keep us faithful to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was made available by the Wallara Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit wallarachurch.org. Eastward Music Camp will now sing, The Lord is Coming. Are you ready?
Up next, Acapeldridge will be singing Sing to Me of Heaven. Sing to me of heaven, sing that song of peace. From the toils that bind me, it will bring release. Burdens will be lifted that are pressing so. Showers of great blessing o'er my heart will flow. Sing to me, of heaven, let me fondly dream of its golden glory, of its pearly gleam. Sing to me when shadows of the evening fall. Sing to me, of heaven, sweetest song of all. Sing to me, of heaven, as I walk alone. Dreaming of the comrades that so long have gone. In a fairer region among the angel throng, they are happy as they sing that old sweet song. Sing to me of heaven, let me fondly dream of its golden glory, of its pearly gleam. Sing to me when shadows of the evening fall. Sing to me of heaven, sweetest song of all. Sing to me of heaven, tenderly and low. Till the shadows o'er me rise and swiftly go. When my heart is weary, when the day is long. Sing to me of heaven, sing that old sweet song. Sing to me of heaven, let me fondly dream of its golden glory, of its pearly gleam. Sing to me when shadows of the evening fall. Sing to me of heaven, sweetest song of all. Welcome to God's Favourite Shepherds, a collection of 39 short stories rounding out the lives of mainly lesser-known Bible characters, with many of the stories ending with a short quiz. Listen now to the author of God's Favourite Shepherds, Bill Ackland. A Girl from Moab, A Life of Loyalty Our people are descended from Abram's nephew Lot, from his eldest daughter. Lot's family was almost wiped out in the destruction of Sodom many years ago. His wife had died because she turned around to see her home going up in flames, despite an angel warning the family not to look back. She was immediately turned into a statue of salt. Since that time, our tribe settled in the southwest part of Canaan. At this time, the people of Israel were liberated from Egypt. They were soon to enter the promised land that God had said he would give them. There was a spirit of hatred between these people and us. Our king would not let them pass through our land. When I heard the story of our nation's history, I thought our king's decision was unfair. Israel had said they would go only on the highway and not take any of our crops 
nor even drink our water. Sadly, our king's decision turned out very badly for us in the years ahead. When I was growing up, something unusual happened. A family came into our town from the city of Bethlehem in the province of Judah, one of the tribes of Israel. We had heard there was a severe famine in their country. This family had come to stay in our part of Moab, as the famine had not extended to our area. The head of the family was Elimelech. His wife's name is Naomi. They had two sons, Marlon and Chilion. I was fascinated to learn from an elder in our village the meaning of these names. Elimelech meant, my God is king. Naomi meant, my pleasantness. Marlon meant, sickness. And Chilion meant, wasting. I was surprised to hear that the parents, whose names had lovely meanings, should give their sons such unhappy names. Incidentally, my name means compassion. Our village people soon got to know Elimelech's family, even befriending them, for they were such pleasant people to know. Sadly, not long after coming to our land, Elimelech, the father of the family, the one his family depended on to provide for them, died suddenly. Somehow they were able to survive with hard work and help from their neighbours. My friend Orpah and I were similar in age to Marlon and Chilion. We grew up together, became close friends, and as happens with young people, we fell in love and married. I married Marlon and Orpah married Chilion. However, our happiness was not to last. A short time later, both Marlon and Chilion died. We were devastated. We couldn't believe that all our plans for children and a long life together were smashed on the rocks like the breaking waves. Naomi, our mother-in-law, must have felt her loss the most, as she had not only lost her husband, but both sons as well. The family had been in Moab for only 10 years. Following this tragedy, Naomi discussed the future with the remaining members of her family, Orpah and myself, her two daughters-in-law. She told us that she must return to Bethlehem, her hometown, for her family roots were there. It might even be possible to have returned to her Elimelech's ancestral land, as she was part of his family. Orpah and I said we would go with her. We couldn't bear seeing her making the long journey by herself to Bethlehem in Judah. Naomi said we should stay in our own country, but we wanted to go with her. Soon after, we started on our long journey. We took a few belongings packed in bags that we could carry on our backs. A short distance down the road, Naomi told us to go back to our parents' homes and let her go on alone. I was a little surprised that Orpah decided to do that. She kissed and embraced her mother-in-law for the last time and returned to her hometown. However, I had made up my mind, regardless of what Naomi said, I remember my exact words that were, Do not urge me to leave you now, or tell me not to go with you on this journey. For wherever you go, I shall go. Where you stay, I shall stay. Your people shall become my people, and your God shall be my God. I want to die in the place where you die and be buried there also. May the Lord punish me if I do not fulfill my promise 
if anything but death comes between you and me. Naomi could see I was determined to go with her. She hugged me tightly and we walked on together. Many days later, we arrived at Naomi's hometown. The people of Bethlehem couldn't believe their eyes when they saw Naomi after being so many years away. They also wondered who was this young woman with her. Is this really Naomi, they asked. She replied, quoting the meaning of her name. Do not call me pleasantness anymore, but call me Mara, which means bitter. For I fear that God has dealt very severely with me in the deaths of my husband and my sons. When I left Bethlehem, our family was complete. But now look at me. All I have left is one precious daughter-in-law. I soon discovered that the people of Bethlehem were very kind. They provided a house for us until we could see what the future held. The first thing for me was to obtain work. Naomi was past working in the fields, gleaning at harvest time as I was about to do. Fortunately, the barley harvesting had just commenced. So I asked Naomi if I could go out and, and glean for us. She told me that she had a relative through her husband, whose name was Boaz. He was a wealthy man, and it just so happened that the part of the large field that was being reaped belonged to Boaz. This was where I started to collect the stalks of grain the reapers had left behind. Gleaning was a long-standing practice in Israel, for it provided for the poor and was required in the writings of Moses, I was told. I had not been out in the field long when Boaz came out from Bethlehem to see how the harvesting was going. He greeted his men in a kindly way and asked them about the young woman gleaning in the field he had never seen before. They told him that I was the young Moabite woman who had recently returned with Naomi. Boaz came over to where I was. I hardly dared to look at this great man. He said, My daughter, do not go into another field to glean, but stay close by the other girls who are gleaning in my field. Do not worry about the men working here, for I have told them they must not treat you unkindly in any way. He reminded me not to forget there were large water pitchers in the shelter near the field with refreshing cool water for me to drink. I was overwhelmed by this man's kindness and replied, I don't know why you have even noticed me and have spoken to me, seeing I have come from another country. Well, young lady, all of Bethlehem knows how kind you have been to Naomi, seeing you would not let her make the long journey from Moab to Bethlehem alone. You left behind your homeland and your family. Now you are working hard all through the heat of the day to provide for her and yourself. May the Lord God of Israel give you his great blessings, for you have thrown your lot in with his people. All I could say was, I hope you will always look kindly on me, my Lord, for your words have comforted me here in this strange land. Throughout the day, Boaz ensured I was well looked after. At the midday meal, he made certain that I had plenty of nourishing food to eat, ever giving me more than I needed, so that I would take home plenty to Naomi. I overheard him say to his reapers to purposely drop more stalks behind for me so that I would have a good result from my day's gleaning. 
When I arrived home that evening, Naomi could hardly believe how much grain I had gleaned during the day. I told her that it wasn't just that I had worked hard all day, but the man who owned the field ensured that more than usual stalks were left for me to collect as I followed the reapers over the field. That is wonderful, my daughter. Whose field did you reap in? When I told her the man's name was Boaz, as she had hoped it would be, she almost was speechless. She said, Praise the Lord, for he is a near relative. God has not forgotten us after all. I didn't understand all she meant in what she said at that time, but I soon learnt how much this man was to be part of my future. The barley was soon harvested, and not long after, the wheat was also ready to harvest. This gave me many weeks of work, and I was able to gather sufficient grain to last until the next harvest. While I was still gleaning, Naomi told me what I should do to work out her plans to secure my future and to ensure the law of the relative redeemer was put in place. This was very much a part of the culture of Israel. It ensured the preservation of ancestral land so that the family property would be preserved. Naomi explained that on a particular night, Boaz would be at the threshing floor and would sleep there that night. She told me to wash myself, use a fragrant perfume and put on my best garment. Then, when he was asleep, I was to uncover his feet and lie down near his feet. She said that Boaz would tell me what to do next. I did exactly as Naomi said. I was feeling just a little nervous and very excited at the same time, for I felt a whole new future was opening up before me. That night, Boaz told me he would fulfill the role of relative redeemer for me. However, another man was an even closer relative than he was. Boaz would discuss this issue with him. If that man fulfilled this role, then that was how it was meant to be. If he chose not to, then Boaz would do it. I was secretly hoping that Boaz would be the one. I left it all in God's hands as I had come to trust him in my life. The way things worked out must have been in God's plan. The nearer relative declined to fulfill the role of relative redeemer. Boaz entered into this covenant before the elders of the city. To seal the covenant, the other relative gave Boaz one of his sandals, confirming that he agreed to the arrangement. Boaz then told the elders that they were witnesses that he had bought the land that had belonged to Elimelech, and through him what would have become Marlins and Chileans. More than that, this covenant meant that Boaz would marry the young woman from Moab to have children by her, and in so doing, the names of those who had died would be continued. So we were married. My joy was full, for not only did I have a kind and caring man as my husband, my future was no longer uncertain but secure. What more could I wish for? We named our baby Obed. God's blessing was upon me as I lived to see his son Jesse and my grandson David. My name is Ruth. You've been listening to God's Favoured Shepherds, a book with 39 short stories rounding out the lives of mainly lesser-known Bible characters. If you have any comments or questions or to obtain a copy of this book, 
Give us a call within Australia on 02-4973-3456 or send an email to radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. We'd love to hear from you. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.